table. He turned, and there, beneath a nest of dark hair and fully bathed by sunshine, were his cock and balls, mere floppy and still sticky appendages. She could look at them if she liked, he didn't mind. But then he could look at her. She was stretched out naked, except for a pair, her only pair, of very cheap earrings. She hadn't pulled up the sheet. She had even clasped her hands behind her head, the better to look at him. But he could look at her, Feast your eyes. It was an expression that came to her. Expressions had started to come to her. Feast your eyes. Outside, all Berkshire stretched out too, girded with bright greenery, loud with birdsong, blessed in March with a day in June. He was still a follower of horses, that is, he still threw money away on them. It was his version of economising, to throw money away. For nearly eight years, he'd had money for three in theory. He called it loot, but he would show he could do without it. And what the two of them had been doing for almost seven years cost, as he would sometimes remind her, absolutely nothing. Except secrecy and risk and cunning and a mutual aptitude for being good at it. But they had never done anything like this. She had never been in this bed before. It was a single bed, but roomy. Or in this room. Or in this house. If it cost nothing, then this was the greatest of gifts. Though if it cost nothing, she might always remind him, then what about the times when he'd given her sixpences, or was it even threepences, when it was only just beginning, before it got, was it the right word, serious. But she would never dare remind him, and not now anyway, or dare throw at him the word, serious. He sat on the bed beside her, he ran a hand across her belly as if brushing away invisible dust. Then he arranged on it the lighter and ashtray, retaining the cigarette case. He took two cigarettes from the case, putting one in her own proffered, pouting lips. She had not taken her hands from the back of her head. He lit hers, then his. Then, gathering up the case and lighter to put on the bedside table, he stretched out beside her, the ashtray still positioned halfway between her navel and what these days he would happily, making no bones about it, call her cunt. Cock, balls, cunt. There were some simple basic expressions. It was March the 30th. It was a Sunday. It was what used to be known as Mothering Sunday. Well, you have a gorgeous day for it, Jane, Mr Niven had said as she brought in fresh coffee and toast. Yes, sir, she'd said, and she'd wondered quite what he meant by it in her case. A truly gorgeous day, as if it was something he had generously provided. And then to Mrs Niven. You know, if someone had told us it was going to be like this, we might as well have all packed hampers, a picnic by the river. He said it wistfully, yet eagerly, so that, putting down the toast rack, she'd thought for an instant there might actually be a change of plan, and she and Millie would be required to pack a hamper. Wherever the hamper was, and whatever they were supposed to put in it at such inconsiderate notice, this being their day. And then Mrs. Niven had said, It's March, Godfrey, with a distrusting glance towards the window. Well, she'd been wrong. The day had only got better. And anyway, the Nivens had their plan, on which the weather could only smile. They were to drive to Henley to meet the Hobdays and the Sheringhams, given their common predicament which only occurred once a year and only for a portion of one day, they were all to meet for lunch at Henley 
and so deal with the temporary bother of having no servants. It was the Hobday's idea, or invitation. Paul Sheringham was to marry Emma Hobday in just two weeks' time. So, the Hobdays had suggested to the Sheringhams an outing for lunch, an opportunity to toast and talk over the forthcoming event, as well as a solution to Sunday's practical difficulty. And then, because the Nivens were close friends and neighbours of the Sheringhams, and would be honoured guests at the wedding, and would have the same difficulty, the Nivens, as Mr Niven had put it to her when first notifying her of these arrangements, had been roped in. This had all made clear one thing she knew already. Whatever else Paul Sheringham was marrying, he was marrying money. Perhaps he had to, the way he got through his own. The Hobdays would be paying in two weeks' time for a grand wedding. And did you really need to celebrate a forthcoming celebration? Not unless you had plenty to spare. It might demand nothing.